next Sunday, I hope to give a little bit more clear idea to our church body what we will be doing for Love Out Loud Green Pines. Uh, there are some pretty neat ideas and exciting ideas that have come from our exposure to the community through the surveys as we've looked together at this. And we want to share with you about three or four. You got exposed to one idea that came from the gym ladies uh, with this uh, clothes, uh, coat, clothes, and toy exchange. Uh, but there will be quite a few others. And so just make sure to be here next Sunday. And um, as you look at your calendars, the weekends of November 21, 22, uh, they're going to be in some important dates uh, that we'll be doing some good ministry uh, throughout our neighborhood. So just to uh, give you that heads up for, for next uh, Sunday. Now, uh, you know, our, we've got a little guy. He's, uh, he'll say just about any word you tell him to. It's kind of fun when you have a little boy that will just repeat every word you tell. I mean, whether he can say it or not, he'll try. Uh, and it's fun. You can make him say all kinds of stuff. Uh, but one of the thing, words he's, he's learning is, is the word home. Um, it sounds a lot like E.T. If you remember some of those who came up in the 80s, E.T., phone home. He's got this home sound. So it's more like a hum that he does. And, and now as we, you know, he's getting familiar with the roads that we're driving in. And he knows uh, when we're getting close to home. The problem is he gets a little confused. Um, as we go over the bridge that goes over 264, um, coming up on... Uh, Hodge Road, every time now, he says, home. And I say, no, we're not going home. We're going to church. <laughs> he comes here so often uh, <laughs> that he thinks this is home. And uh, I said, no, no, this this is church. And, and so uh, this is where we meet together uh, as a church. And and so he's trying to say the word church, but he, he keeps saying the word home. And and, it, you know, it's important that he knows where home is because we want him to always go home. We want to make home a focal point, a hinge in his life that he constantly comes back to, to reset his body physically, spiritually, emotionally. Uh, that's kind of what we identify as home. And, and, and if it doesn't have that role in our life, then it's not home. It's just a place you go to. With that thought in mind... I, I think it's important we know the meanings of words. Uh, and Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, wants to make sure, pays careful attention, that you know where home is. That you know what home is, and most importantly, in, this, in the language of Scripture, you know who home is. Uh, and so, that is the thought of mine. And the idea is that if Jesus is your home then you will always count it as home and you will always return to him as your home. And if there is a time, a season in your life where you ultimately no longer go to Jesus as the one who is your hope, who is the resource of your life, who is the one you go to to reset yourself, home base, if you will, then Jesus is not your home. And don't claim to be a follower of Jesus. And that's kind of the idea you see throughout uh, in the book of Hebrews, and, and promoting this, he constantly is elaborating who Jesus is. And uh, we've seen some beautiful texts 
up to this point. As we study this, uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, I just kind of went through and, and underlined in, in my copy of the Bible uh, various descriptions of who Jesus is. In chapter 1, uh, we see in verse 2 that he is the appointed heir of all things. He is the one through whom all, also uh, the world has been created. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He makes purification for sins. He sits down or sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has become or is much superior to angels. In chapter 2, he see that is in verse 9, Jesus crowned with glory and honor. We see that he is the one who's tasted death. For everyone. We see it is in verse 10 that is for Jesus for whom and by whom all things exist. And it is Jesus who is the founder of our salvation or the captain, the pioneer of our salvation. It is he who is bringing many sons to glory. Ah, all the descriptions of Jesus that we've been given up to this point. It warrants something. It compels something from anyone who knows Jesus. It begs us, make Jesus your home. You ever done one of these parade of home tours? You know, and then the idea is to see all the beauty, amenities of a, of a, a new modern day house. And, and the idea is that you walk away thinking, I want that to be my home. I mean, that's the whole goal. I want to make that my home. It is based on coveting. <laughs> uh, that's how a lot of the things in the economy is actually working. Uh, but it's based on that. And so what we have in scripture is the parade of homes of Jesus Christ. Consider who he is. Have you seen this feature about him? And so we come to chapter 3 and it tells us right out in verse uh, 1 what we're to do with Jesus Christ. And in many ways, uh, it is the principal uh, command of the book of Hebrews. If chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 gives, gives us the summary of the book, chapter 2, uh, verse 1 our chapter 3 verse 1 gives us the principal command of the book of Hebrews. And that is simply consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. I'm going to give you a little bit different outline than what you may be used to. Uh, we're just going to take uh, the main idea of the scripture. We're going to look at it phrase by phrase. And it'll come up on your board on the uh, screen here so you'll know how we're, we're going about. But we're looking at the features of Christ given to us in chapter 3. And verses 1 through 11. And so, in honor of this passage, being the word of God, let's stand as we read this together. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. 
Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the days of testing in the wilderness, when where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore, I also was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You may be seated. Verse 1, the first part, makes us sure we know who this is written to. Uh, notice that word therefore. Remember, anytime you see that word therefore, you figure out what's it there for. There's an action based on something given previously. And so if we were to look at this text, uh, it points us back to chapter 2, verse 17. And the idea in 2.17 is that we have a merciful, faithful high priest... And the service of God who's made propitiation for the sins of the people. Remember that word propitiation? Jesus as priest not only intercedes for us but also becomes an offering. He satisfies the just demands of a holy God for our sin. There's wrath there with our sin. And so when he satisfied it, he propitiated God. He became the propitiation for God the Father. So... Since we have a faithful high priest who is taking care of our sins, therefore, consider Jesus. Now, he says specifically who's to consider Jesus. Holy brothers. Holy brothers. That's a great term, isn't it? We don't call each other holy brother anymore, uh, mainly because we don't feel like we can. <laughs> hey, holy brother. You know, it sounds too much like holy roller. And so we... <laughs> Don't go there. But here Hebrews has no qualms. The author has no qualms in saying, holy brothers. The idea that he's bringing out is that, remember in chapter 2, verse 11, because Jesus was incarnated, because he became flesh, one of the results was that we became a family. We have one source. And chapter 2, verse 11, one source who is of a source of, of God, the Son, as well as those who become adopted as sons. Therefore, it is true, it is right to call one another brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to know, Green Pines, we're not to be like a family. Do you understand that? We're not to be like a family because we are a family. We are a family, and it is time for us to treat one another like Brothers and sisters, yes, even mothers and daddies and children with one another. That is how we're to treat one another according uh, to Timothy. And so we're to do that because Jesus made it so. And the bond between a brother and sister in Christ is greater, more lasting, more deep than even biological and blood. So consequently, I can go to another part of the world and meet a holy brother, a holy sister. Now, he says, what makes it so is that we share, we are partakers, we're companions, we're comrades, we're associates in a heavenly calling. It's a calling that comes from heaven and goes to heaven. It reminds me of chapter 2, verse 10. Remember why Jesus came, why he became a man? And I love this phrase. He became a man to bring many sons to glory. Chapter 2, verse 10. In other words, God is not content with the status of who we are. Frankly, you are born broken. 
I am born broken. I am born selfish. It's not how God intended it to be. He created you. He created you with the idea that you were to reflect the person of Christ. That you were to be like Christ. That is the glory that God is restoring us to. It is a heavenly calling. When we are selfish, when we are rude, when we are impatient, when we are unkind, it is not what God has called us to do. He is working in the circumstances of life and he will go through all extremes to help us to be like Christ. In the Exodus days, he didn't mind if the Jews were to be put apart for 400 years in slavery as objects of prejudice and racism if it meant that they could be more like Christ. Just understand, that's God's main goal in your life. And so it is a heavenly calling, a calling from heaven to heaven. Now, you look around and you say, well, pastor, I don't really want to call them a holy brother. I don't want to call them a holy sister. And I'm not sure about the heaven calling we have together. Because as I look around, and I am looking around, I see sinners of every kind. And you're looking at me and say, well, who are you? Yeah, I've seen you. I've seen you being selfish, and I have. I am a sinner, and we are all sinners of every kind. There are sexual sinners here. There are lying sinners, stealing sinners, even killing sinners, parent disobeying sinners. But listen, the hope of the heavenly calling does not rest on our righteousness. When the author wrote this letter, he was writing to the same type of people and he called them holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling. You see, uh, if it did, we would be hopeless. We would not be holy. We would not be partakers of this. Our hope, our confidence hang on Jesus Christ, which is why he goes on and says, consider Jesus, consider Jesus, because without him, we are not holy And we're not brothers. And we have no calling. And it certainly isn't heavenly. Consider Jesus. Now, let me just make a clarification here. You can think about things of Jesus, but it's not the same. It's not the same. The idea is to fix our thoughts on Jesus. I found that to be true. That I can think about all kinds of things that might be important to Jesus. But it has not the same life-giving strength. I can think about church, and I do think about church an awful lot. But I found that as I think about church, I wake up at 2 or 3 in the morning, and I'll think about something in church, and I won't go back to sleep. It has that effect. I love this church. I think that through this church, this community, this world can be changed. But I'm telling you, it will not give you rest. It will not give you peace. It can frustrate you. It can make you grow old. It can wear you out. Do not consider the church. We can talk about songs of worship and praise. And you can listen all day long to praise music. But it is not the same as considering Jesus. You may get all in tune with the the various instruments being used and how the music works. But it will not give you the same strength as considering Jesus. You can read books 
about Christianity. You can read books about how to share Christ and how to be an apologist and defend the faith of Christ in a world that is skeptical of Christ. You can consider about how all the techniques of displaying Christ to this community. You can read about that all day and fill your mind and you will end up confused and no one will understand you. That's the end result when you read so much like that. You fail to be able to communicate to anybody. And it doesn't give you the same strength. You can consider those who Jesus loves. But if you make them the focus of who you are, you will fail. You will fail. I just beg of you, and I plead with you, focus your mind on Christ. I have found that it's one thing for me to study the sermon. And I can get hyped up. And I can get confused. Or I can get clear. But it's not the same as talking to Jesus. You need to talk with Jesus. I could just sense that even this week. As my mind was filled with this text was about. But when I just stopped and talked with Christ. I thought wow. Here I am talking and studying about considering Jesus. And yet I have failed even to do that. How the difference when I apply what I'm preaching and when I study. Consider Jesus Christ. Now, why? Well, consider Jesus, first reason, because he is the apostle of our confession. He is the apostle of our confession. As we, as we keep on reading it, it just says that. What does that mean to be apostle? The word apostle literally means to be sent out. In a real sense, Jesus was sent out from God the Father. What he did was in an agreement with God the Father. As he himself says, what I see God the Father doing, I do. I join in with him. Every once in a while, and in our mind eyes as children, we see God as this judge and a little bit distance that we just, oh, we're just scared of. But we see Jesus as this, oh yeah, I like Jesus. He's, he's loving. I want to crawl up in Jesus' lap. But not so God the Father. And we see that Jesus is, is they almost have this adversarial relationship. Jesus is the good guy. God, God the Father is the, the mean dude. And, and Jesus wins the battle over the mean God. That is so wrong. Do not teach your children these things. Understand what Jesus did. He did so at the direction of God the Father. They are in agreement. When Jesus dies on the cross, God is also doing so through Jesus. He wants you to be forgiven. He wants you to know the love of Jesus Christ. He is the apostle. He is sent out by God the Father. Now, why do we consider Jesus? Consider Jesus as the apostle. You remember these descriptions that we, we brought out? This is a good apostle because he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's a good apostle because he's the exact imprint of his nature. He's a good apostle because he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's a good apostle because he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which means whatever he was sent out to do, he finished it. It was done. He is a good apostle because he's superior to the angels. Notice all the descriptions we mentioned before in chapter 1 and 2 makes him a wonderful apostle. Consider Jesus. Also, because he is the high priest of our confession. 
He is the high priest of, of our confession. Now, we mentioned before, we're holy. Holy Rena Lee. Holy Lisa, holy Lisa. Holy Chris. Holy Jeff. We are holy brothers and sisters. And we have a heavenly calling. That's unique, isn't it? I remember someone asked you, what, what's your role in life? Well, I have a heavenly calling. That's my job description. You do. Understand. Every one of you has a heavenly calling. And this heavenly calling, you don't have to walk. You don't have to talk well. You don't have to be that smart. And you don't have to be that dumb. But every single one of us has a heavenly calling to be like Christ. Now, how is it that we have this? How can I call Donnie holy? How can you call me holy? It's done because of Jesus Christ who showed me the way, revealed it as an apostle, and then, more importantly, established the way as the high priest. He intercedes before me and for me before God the Father, but not only does he intercede for me, he became the offering for me. And that's where we go back to chapter 2 uh, when it says that he destroyed the power of death, that is the devil, in verse 17 of chapter 2, that he made or paid the propitiation for me, for my sins. That's what a high priest does, and he is faithful in the task. Now, every once in a while we ask ourselves, I wonder if we have enough faith. I wonder if we have enough faith. I would just present that is the wrong question entirely. It is the wrong question entirely. There was an episode back in the 1800s where a Presbyterian professor, a theology professor, was getting close to his time of death. He was blind, weak, and it was just a matter of time. And he was wondering to one of his friends by letter if he had enough faith to face death. That's a, you know, that's a question we may ask ourselves. I wonder, when it comes to time to dying, will I have enough faith? Or we hear about tragedies that happen in our life. When we ask ourselves, I wonder if that was to happen to me, would I have enough faith to do this? And the, the friend that he wrote, back, wrote to responded with a tremendous truth. He said, I think that maybe you should approach this death thing like a chasm. And if someone was to approach a chasm, uh, the question would not be whether or not they had enough faith to cross the chasm. But instead, they would be looking at the bridge. And they would focus their attention on the bridge. He writes in this letter, what does he do to breed confidence in the bridge? He looks at the bridge, he gets down and examines it. He doesn't stand at the bridgehead and turn his thoughts curiously in on his, on his own mind to see if he has confidence in the bridge. If his examination of the bridge gives him a certain amount of confidence and yet he wants more, how does he make his faith grow? Why, in the same way, he still continues to examine the bridge. Now, my dear old man, let your faith take care of itself for a while and you just do the thing of what you're allowed to trust in. Think of the master's power. Think of his love. Think how he's interested in the soul that searches for him and will not be comforted until he finds him. Think of what he has done, his work. The blood, that blood of his is mightier than all the sins of all the sinners that ever lived. Do you think it will master yours? And friends, that is the secret in living life is what scripture tells us to do. Consider Jesus Christ. 
Inspect the bridge. As you learn of him, your faith grows. Remember what Romans tells us? How does faith grow? How does faith come? Except they hear the word of God. How can they hear the word of God unless someone teaches and preaches the word of God? And how do they do that unless see they're sent? The idea, when you teach your children, when you teach your grandchildren, when you're in Sunday school class, when you're preaching the pulpit, is you want to present who Jesus is. The more you lift out the character trait of Jesus Christ to your children, to those around you, faith can grow. It's not how you build faith, it's how you build up Christ. And when you deal with death, when you deal with any adversary that you go through, any struggle, you ask yourself, who is Jesus in this time of my life? Have I come across something that's bigger than Jesus? I don't know. Let me consider who Jesus is. Friends, I have found that when fear comes in and panic comes in, and I wonder, can I go on and can I live life with fear or without fear? Can I live life with peace? Can I live life with kindness and love? When I focus on who Jesus is, it is a strength that comes with that. Consider Jesus. You have been given a wonderful pathway of salvation in Jesus Christ. Focus your mind on him. I think about the Islam, Muslim folks. You know, they pray five times a day. Some of them. Good many of them. And, you know, we're in the airport and uh, they have a carpet load out and it's like two in the morning, something like that. Some crazy hour four. And they, bam, get on their knees on this uh, prayer mat praying toward Mecca. Do that five times a day. I remember we were staying in in, uh, Kenya and we had the benefit of having our hotel near a Muslim forgot what you call them mosque thank you and uh bam four o'clock in the morning you know it's just like oh my goodness and everybody's that's muslim gets up and they pray why they would tell you because that's what allah tells them to do so muhammad the prophet instructed them why did he pray to mecca well you don't question it's just what muhammad the prophet told them to do that's what they would say And we marvel, we marvel, wow, five times a day. I would just present to you that what Christ is, is so much more, is so much more than a prophet. Now I know a good one-sixth of the world would kill me ever saying something like that. But Jesus is more than Muhammad. The question is not how many times should your mind be on Christ, but does your mind ever leave Christ? He is to be the backdrop of everything. The Paul writes it this way that you will be praying continuously. That means that our life should be as such that we are constantly aware of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Constantly aware of that. And so that as we work, We do so with the mind that Jesus is great. And guess what we do when we're doing that? We worship. 
And that is how it is that whether we eat or drink, we can do all to the glory of God. Because in all that we do, we consider that Jesus is great and that he forms the backdrop of our thoughts. Friends, Satan comes in and he gets us not by necessarily putting thoughts into our mind, but trying to keep our mind off Christ. I think that maybe is one of the dangerous things about TV. I'm not certain about it, but it seems that as I watch more TV, the less I think about Christ. That doesn't just go toward TV. That could go across any number of things that you may occupy your mind with. Can you think of Christ and do this at the same time? Friends, if you cannot consider the greatness of of Christ as you're dating someone, then you're doing something wrong on the date. As you're reading something, as you're watching something, if you cannot consider Christ in the midst of that, then something's off and need to realign. Now, consider Christ, the apostle of our confession, the high priest of our confession. Consider Christ, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, Moses is the figure in Jewish faith. I mean, he is the one who gives the law. We read in chapter 2 that God used angels as an intermediary to give the covenant, the old covenant, to Moses. And Moses there in turn turns it to all of the nation of Israel. And so Moses has always been the central guy in the Jewish faith. And so the author is saying, you know, don't be tempted to go back to Moses because who you have in Jesus as a, as a high priest, as an apostle, he is as faithful as Moses. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6 through 8 says this. God is speaking and he says, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? You remember the Old Testament tells us that there was a rebellion against Moses. And God literally opened up the earth to swallow up these who were against Moses. Because Moses was God's man, his prophet. And he was saying that if you reject Moses, you're rejecting me. And so we have Jesus who is as faithful as Moses. But let me go on. Because you have even greater reason to consider Jesus who wasn't just as faithful as Moses, who isn't just a apostle of our confession, the high priest of our confession. But as we read in verse 3, he is counted, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory. So not only is he as faithful, he is more glorious than Moses. What he's presenting in this book is that Jesus is greater than Moses. And he brings up the analogy of a house. It says, as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, did you catch something there? He's liking Jesus to the builder of the house in the first part of verse 3. Builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. In verse 4, the builder of all things is God. He said that Jesus is the builder, and then he says the builder is God. So what did he just say? Jesus is God. And so when you have a Jehovah's Witness coming to you and say, I don't believe that Jesus is God. So, well, wait a second. Hebrews 
says, among other things, that Jesus is the builder and the builder is God. Don't come to me saying that you're people of the book. You're not. You've changed the book and you've hated the book. And so it's very clear, Jesus is God here. It's a beautiful analogy. You know, when you go to uh, these parade of homes, you see a beautiful house and go, oh, ah, this is nice. And you come home and you're so dissatisfied with your house. That's the point. Just know that's the point. All right. Practice contentment. (laughs) But nonetheless, whatever you think about a house makes you think about the builder, doesn't it? It's great to see the builder. It's like, oh, wow, man, you do some great work. And so when a house gets noted on the parade of homes, the builder gets glorified in that magazine and in the community. And what he's saying here is that Jesus is the builder. As great as the law is, as great as Moses was and is, Jesus is greater. You love Moses? Well, guess who made Moses? Jesus made Moses. Therefore, he's greater. You love green pines? Well, Jesus is greater. Because Jesus made green pines. You have some hero in the faith? Jesus made them too. You sit down and listen to Billy Graham, have a little breakfast with him, just soak it all in? Well, Jesus made Billy Graham. And he's available to you by the word of God. You say, well, I'd, I'd, I'd bend my day around to sit with Billy Graham. Then how come you don't bend your day around for Jesus and spend time with him? Jesus is greater than the heroes of the faith. He's greater than Moses. Now, he goes on and talks about how Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. As a servant. To testify that things were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's son, over God's house, as a son. And so he's, he's greater in glory because Jesus was a, or Moses was a servant. Jesus was a son. There's a, a huge difference there. I remember working on the Christmas tree farm and I came in as an employee. There were certain duties and some privileges like getting paid. Um, but I was threatened. If I break the tip of one of these trees coming out of your paycheck so you're lugging around 50 trees 100 trees and you're being very careful you don't ever put them down so the tip doesn't break later on a few years later i went back to the same tea uh, tree farm tea tree distribution area and i came as a friend of the owner a friend of the owner he said you want a tree yeah i'd love to have a tree here take a tree how much are you you don't owe me anything Let's come on. Let's go pick out. Which tree do you want? You see the difference between coming in as a servant versus coming in as a friend of the owner? Now, how much more Jesus, who is not just a friend of the owner, but is the owner in the house of God? There is greater benefit. So why? Why do we just model and role model after these heroes of the faith when you could be following after Jesus? Why do we get hung up over singers? When you could have Jesus as the hero of your faith. Why do we get caught up in the preachers and the church leaders and the personalities on radio and TV and books when we could have Jesus? If you find yourselves reading things that are more than what you read about Jesus or of Jesus and from him, there's cause for concern there. There's cause for concern. And so 
Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Uh, if you go to um, George Washington, or to um, Washington D.C., uh, we did that tour last spring, and one of the things that hits you is that George Washington is huge in Washington D.C. I I don't know why that caught me by surprise. Um, you know, <laughs> the name didn't suggest it. Uh, but you go there and, and you realize, you know, all the forefathers of the faith, or the forefathers of the country, rather, uh, you know, you, you've got the Thomas Jefferson, you've got the Benjamin Franklin, you've got the Patrick Henrys, you've got all these, these characters that we just, man, they're huge in our country. But altogether, they unified, recognized George Washington was greater than any of them. They voted continuously. If there was a, anyone to lead the country, it always went to George Washington. Whether he was commander-in-chief to the president of the United States, bam. No doubt. No debate. George Washington is the man. You go there and you see the Washington Monument. There is to be no building in Washington, D.C. that is taller than the Washington Monument. We go into the Capitol. The Rotunda. And I was disturbed when I looked up to the rotunda and they explained to me what was up there. It was a, a picture of George Washington ascending up into heaven on a throne, a chair. And it had these beings around him like angels. I thought, oh my, we've gone too far. We've gone too far. Washington, we all regard as the founder of this nation in many ways, the principal leader but I would just present to you, Jesus made George Washington. Jesus made this country. And he can ball it up and throw it away if he wants to. Jesus made this world. And he can ball it up and throw it away if he wants to. He made your life. He sustains your life by the power of his word. And if he wants to, he can ball it up and throw it away if he wants to. What fools we are if we are to put anything above Christ. And here's the kicker. Most of us don't put others, we put ourselves above Christ. Why? How do we compete with who Jesus is? Are we the express image of God? The exact imprint? Are we greater than the angels? Are we able by the power of words to sustain anything? Can you get my hair right? No? This is Jesus we're talking about. He's the one crowned with glory and honor. What am I crowned with? Maybe strength for a few years. And then gray hair and maybe none. But Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Jesus tastes death for everyone. He is for whom and by whom all things exist. He is the founder of their salvation. What have I found? Why would I exalt myself above Christ? Now, verse 7. We, we see, a, rather, let's continue verse 6. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting, our rejoicing, and our hope. We must hold fast. What does this mean? I want, I want you to understand, God keeps his believers secure in his love and protection. John 10, verse 28 to 30 says this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5 says that if you belong to Christ, Christ can keep you 
for his eternal purposes and you are secure in him. However, let me just state this as stated here. However, believers must persevere in their faith and commitment to Christ. No Christian has a right to say, I'm a Christian because I made a commitment to Christ 15 years ago and God keeps me internally secure. You get that? There must be the perseverance in our faith to Christ. As I said before, if somewhere along the way I say to my wife, I'm not coming to 5017 Aris Spring Lane anymore. I'm going to some other address. I'm going to Nepal, India. I've got a house over there. What have I said? 5017 is no longer my home. Because by my actions, I go elsewhere. So consequently, it's not my home. Home, by definition, is the place we go to like the door upon a hinge. That we rest our heart, our mind, our soul, our hope, our strength is found there. If we go elsewhere, it is, by definition, inherently not our home. Christ is to be our hope, our strength, our refuge, that which our future is counted on, our past is redeemed by. If we go to any other source, any other thing, then by definition, we've not made Christ our home. That's why he says, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, because... Jesus, we consider Jesus, who is our apostle of our confession, the high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him as Moses, who is counted more worthy or worthy more glory than Moses, because it is Christ who is the owner of this home. Therefore, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What does that mean? First of all, notice verse 7, he says, the Spirit of God is saying this. He's quoting from Psalm 95, verse 7, 11. But he doesn't say David says this. He says, God said it. Do you understand that when you read the Bible, we have the same attitude as the author of Hebrews? This isn't just David's words. These are God's words to me. And notice what he says in verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, God's word is applicable to today. Now, when, when the author wrote this, it was several hundred years and thousands of years after David penned it. But nonetheless, he says, today, what God said through David is still true today. From Psalm 95, verse 711, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And, and, he, and he goes back, and, and from this point on, he is comparing the, the faith in Christ, our walk with him and salvation to what the Hebrews did when they left Egypt and went to the promised land. And it is, becomes a type, becomes a symbol of what they went through, becomes a symbol of what we go through today. And he says, you remember how back then they were constantly testing God? You can see this reference in Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 and 7. In fact, the word for testing is the word Masai. The word for rebellion uh, is Meribah, which is Meribah, which are two places there, uh, names, locations given in Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 and 7, where they said, God, we want water. You can't give us water. You're here to kill us. Why are you doing this to us? And they were questioning the character of God, the power of God. And he says, don't do that. Don't be like that where you want to go back to Egypt. 
It says, as believers today, when you question the character of God, I don't know if God's really good. I don't know if he's really powerful. I don't think it's worth following God. I'm just going to go my own way and forget about God. He says, that is as, as rebellion, your hardening heart against the power of God. The hardening of your heart is a constant response of resistance that leads to the habit of disobedience and ultimately to judgment. If you are constantly saying to God, no, that's a bad idea, God. You're hardening your heart. Let me tell you, your little decisions are huge. Your little decisions are setting up a mindset of whether you're being soft to God or every little decision could be firming up your resistance to God. Those little decisions that happen a day matter. Whether I'm going to obey God or not sets the environment of your heart, sets the, uh, whether your heart's going to be fertile to God. If you are constantly resisting, you're constantly hardening your heart. And it reminds us of Pharaoh in that same story of Exodus who, though seeing the power of God, said, I don't want to do what God's calling me to do because it's not convenient. It's much more grand to my esteem, to my glory, to my kingdom if I disobey God here, despite whatever power he's displayed. It is for us to say, I don't care that Jesus died on the cross. I don't care that he rose again from the dead. I'd rather do my own agenda and go my own way. The word of warning, and we'll talk about more next time. Verse 11, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Scripture says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, there are two pillars of the faith. The Lord knows those who are his. In other words, God only knows the heart. The second one is, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Very simply, you follow Christ, you make him your home, then you're going to long to be with him. You're going to long to hear from him. These are characteristics of anyone who has their home with Christ. Someone will inevitably come up to me and say, well, what about so-and-so? You know, they made a profession of faith some years ago, and, you know, I, I don't see any change in life. I'm going to say this. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's what God has revealed. But Hebrews seems to bring out the idea, you have a faithful high priest. Be faithful to him. There is a greater, more desirable faithfulness mentioned here. One on Christ and one on our life. This story of um, Chronicles of Narnia, it's a, a, a book written by C.S. Lewis, part of his uh, Lion King, Lion Witch, and the Wardrobe series. Um, if you're not familiar with it, it is, uh, I think, what, five, six books altogether. It is an allegory of salvation in a lot of ways. Aslan, the great majestic Lion is the king of the country who represents God. Represents God. And the third book, the third installment, which I think they're making a movie of, um, the idea is that there's this ship called the Don Trader, Don Treader, who is going from their country to Aslan's country, who is in the east. In the east, the same direction that the uh, Hebrews are going from, from Egypt to the promised land. And they get to a point where they're running low on supplies. They have just enough supplies to make it back to their country. But if they go any further, they will not have enough. 
And the problem is they don't know exactly how far they've got to go to get to Aslan's country. And so they're trying to make a decision. What should we do? Should we turn around? Should we go ahead? And they're having this huge debate about this. And there's this little mouse, Repicheep. He is a short little dude who has a lot more courage than physical statue. And that's what he's known for, loyalty and courage. And he is all about Aslan. His loyalty is to Aslan himself. And, and he remains quiet in this debate. And then finally someone realizes, Repicheep the mouse is not talking. What should we do? Uh, don't you have a, a vote in this? Don't you have some say in this? He responds by saying, no. And he yells out, why should I? And everybody focuses attention on this little mouse. My own plan is made. While I can, I sell east and the Don Treader. And when she fails me, I will paddle east on a boat. And if that little boat should sink, I will swim east with my four paws. And when my four paws fell me, I will sink with my nose for the sunrise. And if I die, I will die with my face pointed to Aslan. That is the picture of someone who has a home with Jesus. Whatever it goes, whatever it befalls, let my last thought be, consider Jesus. You do that, you don't have to worry about your faith. It will come.